Good morning. Um, yeah, thank you uh, for the kind words, Eric. Um, like you said, my name is Kevin Drake. Um, you know, I'm a member here, um, community group coach and, and leader. Um, been a part of the Oaks for a good bit, almost near the beginning. And my wife, Christy, and I, we, um, we have three boys, ages six and under, and recently uh, they've initiated us into one of America's favorite pastimes, youth sports. <laughs> so <clears throat> this spring, um, with ages three and five, uh, it's very loosely considered soccer. Uh, there's not a lot of soccer happening. I even got thrown into substitute coaching a couple weekends, something my wife relished and I reluctantly accepted. Um, they don't give you a whistle, I'll tell you that. They don't, they don't give you one. You have to bring your own. Um, one thing about youth sports it helps you appreciate is the development of motor skills in kids. We aren't born with those. Everything you have, it's taken you a very long time to learn how to do, such as running fast and then stopping without falling down. <laughs> a lot of that happens. So last year, our, the first year we, we did soccer, Sam was four. Um, we were coming out of a particularly isolated time. I don't know if you remember 2020 and 2021. Um, so... Getting to soccer, first time being around a lot of other kids, first time in any organized uh, session of sports. Um, and it was a little difficult. It was a little difficult. Um, uneasy, Sam was uneasy. We were all uneasy around uh, each other. And one time in particular, he was on the sideline, he was not in the game, and the ball rolled over to him, and he was so excited, he ran onto the field, kicked the ball back on the field, and uh, tried to play, and the coach said, hey, Sam, no, it's not your turn, you gotta stay on the sideline, and he did not take that very well, did not understand that that was a rule in the game, and so he took off running uh, to the van, said he did not want to play soccer <laughs> anymore. Uh, that was the end of it for him. Now, this year was very different. We had a whole year, you know, we did some, some kicking around in the yard in between last year and this year. Started off a little bit of the same way, a little bit of apprehension, but then he was very much in the swing of it, very much in the swing of it, very, um, you know, running, kicking, uh, absolute brick wall in goalie in the kids' soccer, something um, we Drakes are pretty good at, standing in one spot. Yeah. Be a little shifty, maintain the element of surprise. <laughs> so between last year and this year, what happened? What's the difference? You know, when you're growing in something, we grow in confidence. We've done something for a little while, we get a little bit better, but so much of it is confidence. Confidence is a huge thing in sports. It's a huge thing in professional sports, too. They have, like, designated counselors and therapists to help make sure that they're in the proper headspace. Even if you're an elite, talented athlete from a physical sense, you have to be mentally in the zone to perform at such a high level. Confidence is what it's all about and what Sam has grown in. And that's part of what youth sports can help, is develop confidence. In this word assurance that we're starting this series about in Colossians, practical assurance, it's really another word for confidence, having confidence. That's what Paul is doing in this letter to the Colossians. When we lack confidence, we can be fearful, doubtful, anxious, and it might be a little ironic too, we're coming out of a series on doubt. It's actually really good, you know, we've spent the time analyzing, examining, asking ourselves, giving ourselves permission to ask these hard questions, to acknowledge our doubts and our fears. But that's not where we end, right? You know, that's what we talked about a good bit during this series. 
there's a beauty to coming into a season of asking ourselves, what do we have confidence in? How do we practically maintain confidence? And I think two words over this series could be rest assured. Rest assured. That's a phrase that we use when you're trying to tell somebody to be confident. And so Paul, in the beginning of this letter on Colossians, or to the Colossians, he's trying to reassure this church, reinvigorate them, remind them of Christ's supremacy, of our sad state, and of God's solution for our sad state. So let's read this together. I think it'll be on the screens, right, Rob? Yeah. So Colossians 1, 1 through 23, the first 23 verses of this letter. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is set before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. So like I said, Paul, he's beginning this letter to the church in Colossae. And what we'll see in it are three things, Christ's supremacy, our sad state, and God's solution. Now, a little bit about this city, Colossae, it's in modern-day Turkey. Paul's writing to it. Someone, Epaphras, most likely, heard Paul preach, 
and took the message of Christ to this church, to this area, and started this church. Paul did not visit it, but it is connected to him, and so he's deeply invested in this community. And so Paul is in, most likely in prison in Rome writing this letter to this church that he has a connection to, that he knows the person who went and started this church. And what he's heard, he hears a report from this, about this city and the church there, and what's happening is that there's all of this false teaching. It's causing this conflict. They're, they're believing just wrong things about who Jesus is and was and the truth about God. Now, we don't specifically know what this heresy was in Colossae, but we do know a few things about it just from what Paul is saying to the Colossians. We know that it challenged the reality of Christ's deity and his supremacy. It required various forms of asceticism and other religious requirements above and beyond faith. And we see this in verse 15 through 20, where Paul is emphasizing the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is Lord over all, and that there's nothing in addition to Christ that we need. In verse 15, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Paul wants to encourage the readers of this letter, those in Colossae, and remind them of the truths of Christ. In layman's terms, he's trying to say that it's all about Jesus. All of it. Now, it's worth diving into a couple of these phrases because it can really illuminate so much of what it means about Jesus and what was challenging at the time and what's important to us. The first thing I want to focus on is this word firstborn. Firstborn, at the time, you could think that it really means about being the first that's born. But that's not exactly what he's getting at because it's actually this kind of like ironic way he's using the word because within Gnosticism, one of the various you know, religious groups that could have been part of this heresy, there were different emanations that came from God. And that you, once you kind of like learned or experienced one emanation, you would move on to the next one, and eventually you would be like God. This, was, this is not what the gospel teaches, if you didn't know. And so this is what he's trying to speak out against. And so he's, not say, he's saying that Jesus is not just the first way of knowing God. It's not the first level, and then we level up beyond Jesus. No. Instead, this idea of firstborn, it's a rank. It's a rank, it's a position that Jesus holds. Paul's highlighting that he is the highest level of authority and position in God's created order. And that goes on to the next phrase where it says, created through him and for him. It's another phrase that emphasizes the supremacy of Christ in the created order. This idea of God's creation, Paul's calling back to obviously the creation account in Genesis. You know, God created all things in the seven days. It's also emphasizing or calling back to the wisdom literature where wisdom personified is what's speaking over creation and Proverbs. But this, this phrase for him, created through him and for him, it can also be translated as toward him created toward him, meaning that when God creates all of creation, we are all facing God. We are all facing Jesus. 
And in the Bible, or in, the, in Genesis, in the creation account, we see this. What is Adam doing with God in the garden? They're in relationship. They're going on walks together. They're hanging out. They're spending time together. There's not this like awkward distance or um, you know, huge gap in terms of authority in their relationship. You know, God clearly is in authority. Christ is supreme, but God is entering into relationship with Adam. Now, the problem is, is that we're not still in that garden, are we? And that's what brings us to our sad state. Something changed. Something changed about creation facing God, facing Jesus. Paul emphasizes our sad state through a couple of phrases later in the passage. There's two ways. He talks about being alienated, and he talks about the domain of darkness. I like thinking about these words in a different way, a rhyming way. Gloom and exclusion. <laughs> you like that, Pruitt? Gloom and exclusion. The first one, alienated, Paul says it in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. This word alienated, it can mean excluded or estranged. I think those words, being excluded, I think it's easy to relate to. You know, we've all been excluded from things before. Maybe you were the fat kid in elementary school who got picked last in recess sports. Wasn't me. Why would you ask? We know what it's like to not get invited to something, to feel left out. You don't get the interview, let alone the job. You get broken up with. Someone says no to a date. When we're excluded, we hear someone, we experience someone saying, you're not worth it. I don't think you belong here. And it hurts. It's not just being sensitive. There's real hurt in experiencing that. Experiencing someone saying that. We all know what this, this pain is, but the difference here in the alienation of our sin before God is that it's our fault. You know, being not invited to the movies with a group of friends, maybe that's on them, you know what I mean? Like, maybe that's their own thing that's going on. But instead of being not picked in recess football, we are more like the drunk relative that makes a big scene at Thanksgiving and slashes the tires on the way out. There's a reason they're not invited back. In the same way, in our sin, there's a reason we are alienated. Our alienation, because of our sin, is necessary. And I think that's a hard truth to grapple with. And it's not just a hard truth for us today. People in the past have had a hard time grappling with this. In the 17th century, there was a, a preacher named George Whitfield. He was kind of like a rock star. He filled fields. They didn't have arenas necessarily, you know, but he was an arena tour preacher. And here's what, this was what the Duchess of Buckingham wrote in reply. One of her high society Christian friends invited her to come hear George Whitfield preach. And she said this, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. 
This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. It's kind of, that last part's kind of weird, but of the times, of the times. There's something to the reality of sin and the separation from God that it brings that's offensive and will cause people to ask, you don't really believe that, do you? That we're born with sin? That in God's eyes, our sin separates us from him, whether you're Mussolini or Mother Teresa? That we're all alienated from God? But that's the truth. It's the hard truth, but that's the truth that Paul is teaching here, that he's writing to the church. There's a second way that he talks about our sad state, this reality of sin, and it's the domain of darkness. Verse 13 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. There's a few ways you can understand darkness, the obvious one. You know, God is light, 1 John says, and if we're in sin, we're apart from the light, we'll be in darkness. It can also mean death, spiritual death, or you know, hell. In Adam, all die, Paul writes in Romans. But then there's another way that this specific term is translated sometimes, and it's gloom. It's an emotional space of sorrow. And it's a domain of it. It's almost like we're trapped in this, in our sin. What is gloom make you think of? I have something that it makes me think of, and it's from the Disney movie Soul. I've got a gif, actually, of these things from the movie called Lost Souls. If, like me, you know, Disney Plus kind of got your kids through the pandemic for that that summer, um, you probably watched this a good bit. Um, But as I was thinking about gloom, I kept kind of thinking about this visual of these gray souls just kind of wandering about on their own, alone, and just all grayed out, you know? And in the movie, what happens, Joe, he's a music teacher, pianist, he gets this big break, he's going to be able to play for um, this big act, and on his way to rush home to get his suit, he falls in an open manhole cover and dies. And then the whole process of the movie is him getting back to his body so he can have that big break and get after his dream. And in the process of getting there, he comes through what's called the astral plane, where these lost souls are. And one of the characters, here's how he describes the lost souls. He says, lost souls are obsessed by something that disconnects them from life. They are obsessed with something that disconnects them from life. And maybe you feel like this from time to time. You know, we've been delving into that feeling coming with this, the previous series on doubt. Maybe you feel like it now, maybe you're coming out of a season. We all will go through periods of this, of gloom, because that's the state of our hearts in sin before Christ returns and all tears are wiped away. The domain of darkness. I think it's, 
it's interesting. It's 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 not that you know in in the movie it's all about being chasing your dream and your passion. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not exactly what's happening in our hearts. Instead of you know being distracted by something that disconnects us from life, we're really infected with something that disconnects us from life, that robs us of the joy of the way God intended things to be. Now, you might be saying, I thought this was a series on confidence and assurance. Um, This doesn't really uh, vibe with that. Um, Well, you'd be right if there wasn't a solution for this sad state. And Paul talks about this at length. This is why there's so much beauty in the supremacy of Christ, is that there's grace and peace in Christ. It's actually the solution... What, Christ is talk- or what Paul is talking about is actually the very first thing he says. It's the greeting at the very beginning. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. Verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. This greeting from Paul, it's great because he's actually combining two different greetings that different people groups in the city would understand. Grace was a common Greek greeting, Chiron, and then this word peace, it's shalom, which was a Hebrew term meaning well-being that springs from a sense of the presence of God. And he's writing this on one hand, you know, to really capture the attention of likely a Jewish community, but also Greeks in a secular pagan city, there's lots of people, people from all sorts of different walks of life. He's trying to say greetings to both groups. But there's a reality to both of these words that should give us comfort. Paul is saying that grace is what brings about that shalom, that inner sense of well-being with the presence of Christ. And what brings that about, that grace, is Christ's sacrifice on the cross. This is how Paul kicks off the whole letter. He's he's saying from the start, this is what's going to give you grace and peace. This is what's going to give you comfort to the gloom that we feel in our hearts that is ours because of sin. We have peace and comfort by Christ's sacrifice. Verse 20 says, making peace by the blood of Christ. Christ reconciled us by giving himself up for us and experiencing death on a cross. It was a brutal, suffocating, humiliating death. That's what gives us peace and comfort. And when I think about peace, peace of Christ, Christ's sacrifice, um, and I think about the supremacy of Christ and what, like, where it kind of like just digs at me personally, I think about peace from fear or anxiety. The confidence from the supremacy of Christ should calm our nerves. You know, I'm a relatively anxious fellow. I'm learning this about myself. I'm not quite, you know, I'm a little prepper adjacent. You know, I don't have a bunker with the year's worth of supplies, but I see where they're coming from. I think they might have a little bit of a point. Um, 
There's just something about being prepared that was drilled into me from a young age. You know, it's the Boy Scout motto, be prepared too. And I can go through these loops in my mind about making sure everything's covered. It's why I get anxious before business meetings, making sure I've got everything I need prepared, ready for every question in that mid-year review with that leader. Do I have a large enough emergency fund for my family? Is there a recession? Oh my gosh, inflation. Look at the price of gas. You know, it can go on and on and on and on. Can I give my kids the lifestyle that my parents gave me? Am I a good dad? All of those things are fears and anxieties that can happen. And I think we're all familiar with that in one way or another. We can all wind up down at the bottom of that spiral. And I think all of that, in me personally, is coming from this place. What my soul is yearning for when I'm like wrestling with those questions is to hear that everything's going to be okay. Is everything really going to be okay? I was talking to somebody at, at work, uh, a, a senior leader, about a challenge that I had for my team that we've been tasked with, and it's kind of tough sledding right now. You know, we're, we, we, so the project is across a lot of different business units where we need to be the ones to kind of garner cooperation with others. It's just, we're not getting a lot of traction right now. And she said something really simple, but really profound that has really, you know, opened my eyes and, and taken a little bit of the pressure off. She said, you know, that project, that challenge, it's not your challenge. It's the business's challenge. It's not your challenge. The business is the one saying, we need to make this move, and they need to, the business together needs to come together and equip everyone involved for this project. And I think in the same way, when God looks down into our lives about our fears and our worries, he doesn't come to us and say, that's your problem. That's your challenge. That's your fear. Instead, the cross is God specifically saying, that's my problem. That's my challenge. That's my fear now. It's not on you. Everything's going to be okay. And I think maybe it's not just this general worry or anxiety or fear for you. But I think Paul gives us a kind of way to identify some of those things for us personally where the supremacy of Christ and this grace and peace can be particularly comforting to each and every one of us. In verse 18, he says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Everything. That in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent, swap it in, supreme. It's just... Swap it out. And I think the question for us is, what is it hard to let Christ control for us? Where are we just white-knuckling, saying, it really is my challenge. i got to take full control of this. I'm not going to let you in on this. You pop out the word everything. What is it in that sentence that in blank 
Christ might be preeminent. What makes you squirm? What makes you prickle, bristle? Is it your marriage, your job, your career, your finances, how you spend your weekends and evenings? I don't know what it is for you personally. But there's an invitation, and whatever that blank is for you, whatever that everything, whatever's missing from everything, an invitation to experience more of Christ's grace and comfort, the peace of God, by letting his supremacy in to that thing. There's one last thing about this passage that I think can help us experience more of what Paul is writing here. And it's that this passage, this whole section, verse 15 through 20, it's a poem. It's a song. It's an adapted hymn, these words on the supremacy of Christ. And I think that's great because, you know, art, poetic language, poetic form, is meant to give the reader pause. It's meant to imply significance and meaning and beauty. We all have songs or paintings or movies, don't we, that just hit us in that one spot, that just make us, take us out of the moment, you know, and experience something bigger than ourselves, you know, leave all the things that are bothering us in our life, our fears and our worries, behind. There are certain songs, certain movies, I don't know what it is for you. You know, someone I know spends time daily looking at a print of Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. And we've got a copy of that for the screen. We all have art that we can look to that really takes us out of the moment and helps us experience something beyond ourselves. And one friend I have, he spends time reflecting on this painting every day. You know, sometimes reading or journaling, it's, it, it gets stale. But having something in art to inspire us can evoke something bigger. In this painting, we see the father of the prodigal son. He's embracing his lost son, his estranged son, looking past all the material loss, the relational distance, and the emotional suffering that the prodigal son caused. The father's doing this in order to have him back in his life. The son was literally estranged, and after trying to live it up on his own, I can only imagine the darkness and the gloom he felt, enough so to come back and face his father. Could you imagine walking through your hometown on the street back to the family that you intentionally left and hurt? You can take that down now. You know, there's a, there's a song that acts like that, this painting for me personally. A lot of times, songs can hit us and move us. We don't really see them coming. We don't choose them, you know? Um, but it's something that I visit when, you know, reading, journaling, some of the more like thought-driven um, disciplines have gone stale. 
Um, and the verse goes like this. Are you hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We're actually going to sing that song for communion. Thank you, Jared, um, for the 11th hour change. Um, but I think these words can meet us with this text, whether you're having a hard time believing in that control that God has, the supremacy that Christ holds, whether you're stuck in that darkness by sin or by hardship, that gloom, or struggling to see the peace and comfort that our relationship with Christ offers us. This song shares these words that can calm our fears and anxieties. To hear God say that your challenges are my challenges. And that's what Christ did on the cross, and it's what we celebrate at communion. During the Last Supper, Christ took the bread, and he broke it and gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the new covenant of my blood. So if you believe in this sacrifice, come and celebrate. Take a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, and experience that peace and comfort, the grace and peace that Christ has bought for us. And if this isn't a celebration for you, it doesn't make sense to take part, but if it's something that is intriguing you, then come forward. Come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Grab me, Barry, Eric, and we can talk and pray with you. We'd love to do that. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for this letter to the Colossians that we might dive into it and know more of your supremacy and of your solution through Christ's sacrifice, that we might have grace and peace. Open our hearts to receive this truth. Help us to know your comfort and know that, that you do not leave us on our own, leave us estranged or alienated, but instead welcome us home with arms open wide and call us sons and daughters.